0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it you can simply email us at info at One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com.
1: We're going to look at this simple question, and this is in the Bible notes. If, again, if, you're, um, if you follow along in that, it's the Lord's anger. Is, is God mad? Is God mad at you? Is God still mad? Is he mad at you? Before we just simply throw out this, you know, answer of no, of course he's not mad. We have to look at some scripture because there are some scripture here that we're going to take a look at. Uh, that definitely communicate that God is, or at least was, very, very, very mad at people. My concern with what we're going to see uh, the, in these scriptures, if we, don't, if we don't understand the true uh, finality of what happened on the cross, we are going to live in this system of back and forth thinking that the anger of the Lord still is aimed and focused upon you each and every time that you disappoint him, that you sin, that you fall short. Is God still angry? Is he still mad? Because let's face it, if we get this one wrong, then we could potentially, I don't think it's potential, but I'll just leave that out there, have a very skewed view of the heart of the father, the heart of the Lord. So is he mad? Well, has he ever been mad? Let's answer that question first. And, and, and also, let me say this. If he's not mad with you, if he's not, then what is he with you? Okay? That's, what, that's how we're going to wrap it up in a few minutes. If he's not mad with you, then what is he with you? Okay? So let's look, let's look first at some history. This is back in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. Anybody you know, recently read through Numbers? It's exhilarating, right? <laughs> Read through Numbers. The reason why it's called Numbers is it's uh, the, a book that Moses wrote to record the numbers of people who were in the nation of Israel at the time. It's exhilarating. Um, but in the book of Numbers, we come across a couple of, of passages. I, I think I have two on, that are going to be on the screen where it clearly states the anger of the Lord that he was angry, mad. Look at this one right here in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity. Raise your hand if you've ever complained of adversity, all right? Okay? We've all, in one way, shape, form, or another, complained of adversity, all right? So this is the standard by which God's anger burned against people because they complained of adversity. If this is the way it still works today, (laughs) we are toast. I mean, look at this. The people, this is the people of Israel, became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard their complaint, heard it, it being the complaint of adversity, His anger was kindled. You know what that means? The anger was already there. It didn't start. It was kindled. It it was like you throw uh, some some uh, uh, small wood onto a spark to get it. To, to grow, that fire to grow, to burn hotter. His anger was kindled. Now look at this. And the fire of the Lord, what's the fire? The fire is his anger. The anger of the Lord, the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Why? Because they complained of adversity. It's kind of cold in here. It's kind of hot in here. It's kind of smelly over there. It's kind of the complain of adversity. I wouldn't have made it through my teenage years if this is the situation, if I was in the camp of the Israelites. Because I was complaining about everything. And so, is there precedent of God being angry? Oh, yeah. We're going to look at a few more of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. His anger burned against them because of their complaining to the point where he consumed. The anger kindled to a fire, and he actually physically consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Look at this other one, Job chapter 4. By the breath of God, they perish. Now, we've all been in conversations with somebody with the breath that is like, I would rather be perished than continue to smell this. But this says, the breath of God, by his very breath they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. So is there precedent? Precedence? Has God been angry before? Yeah. By his breath they come to an end. A blast from his anger destruction. Now back to numbers, here's another passage in numbers. Look at numbers 32. This is one of uh, this is this is a very popular famous passage. This is where Israel is exiled in, in essence to 40 years of wandering. It says, "So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years." So what was burning? It's God's anger, his wrath, his, 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 his being mad against them. And he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. So they had done something. They'd done evil. And if you know your your, your Israelite history, they... The, the what what had uh, ultimately happened is God had promised the Promised Land and the spies had gone over to to spy it out and twelve spies and ten of them said we can't we can't take God at His word and two said why not and that was the root of this uh, of what they had done evil they didn't believe God they didn't believe His promise that the land was theirs and so they God's anger against their disbelief burned against them. And so for 40 years, everyone who was alive during that time, except for Joshua and Caleb, the two who said, yes, we can take it. Everyone else, including Moses, died during that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The Lord's anger burned against them. So is there precedent of the Lord being angry and burning with anger and his anger burning so hot if you will, that it actually caused destruction. Yes, and there's no denying that. That is the way of it. That is how it worked. Now, the question that we have to really come to terms with is, is that same anger, that same, I don't think this is a word, but we'll go with it, that same madness, that same level of mad, does that continue to today Now, in this new covenant, and if not, why not? Well, let's stay in the Old Testament for a bit, and we have a couple of passages that are beautiful, that are amazing, where he is actually forecasting something that's going to change. There's going to come a change, he says. Now, this is still, this is hundreds of years before Jesus walks the earth. This is hundreds of years before the cross, and he begins to communicate to them that things are going to change, now if, if we don't if we don't understand these passages this first one is going to be in Isaiah 43 here if we don't understand these passages let's put ourselves in the shoes of these israelites your context of god is my forefathers died in the land in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years because of the evil that was done, the Lord's anger burned against them so much. Then the whole group that was exiled to Babylon was exiled to Babylon because of the people, the nation of Israel, again, sinning. And His wrath was poured out against them in this exile. And so, tr- they, by the time you get to Jesus' uh, walking on earth, they, the Pharisees have have devoted themselves so earnestly to keeping the Mosaic Law... They think they can actually do it, which is why you have this hyper-religiosity amongst the Pharisees because they have this track record of God's anger burning against sinful people, and they they don't want to be that. Instead of growing aware of their inability, they try their best to keep their end of the bargain, which nobody can do. So in this forecasting. We get to Isaiah where he's prophesying something that's going to come. And look at what the Lord says. He says, do not call to mind the former things or ponder on the things of the past. So what are the things of the past? What is the way in which the people of the Old Testament knew the Lord? The way in which the people of Israel knew the Lord was if we disobeyed, there was anger that burnt and there was outskirts of camp that were singed and there was wandering in wildernesses until everybody was destroyed. That was the way it worked in the past. And God is prophesying. He's saying there's going to come a day where I don't want you to think back because, verse 19, I will do something new. Now this is still in the Old Testament. This is Isaiah. But he's prophesying, saying there's going to come a new day. I'm going to do things differently. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? In other words, are you going to miss it? Are you going to be so zoomed in on the way it used to be that you're going to miss the new way? You're going to miss what's new, which is exactly what happened with the nation of Israel. He says... I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. So this is obviously uh, colorful imagery uh, that God is using here. But imagine a desert, desolate, with no life, no possibility of life, a desert. Nothing lives there. It's desert. Nobody wants to go there. It's desert. And he is promising that the day will come, I'm going to do something so new, that there's going to be a river in the desert. What does a river represent? Life, newness, uh, vitality, uh, springing forth. The scripture talks about springing forth of a well of of life. And so there's this desert of inability to ever be reconciled to God. But I'm going to do something new. I'm gonna do something so different that in this desert of inability to reconcile, be reconciled to God, I'm gonna put a river of life in the midst of it. And those who jump in, those who hop in, the idea, of course, is shall experience this life. So there is an old way, there was a way in which God related, there was a way in which God, through the people of Israel in particular, his chosen people, he chose them to show them how their effort can never make them okay with the Lord. And he prophesies to them saying, a new day is coming. It's so new, going back to verse 18, that I don't want you to even remember the ways that it was before, where when you disobeyed, there was immediate destruction. I don't want you to think on that. This new way is so new. It's so different. In Jeremiah 31, which we're not going to read all of it, but in Jeremiah 31, One of the greatest promises about this new way that he just said in in, uh, Isaiah, this new thing, this new way, he says that this new covenant, he says, is nothing like the what? The old covenant. Whatever you know of that old covenant of the anger burning because of disobedience, whatever you know of it, this new covenant is nothing like it. And look here in verse 37. So he's the Lord, in, uh, in context, in Jeremiah 31, he's talking about this new covenant to come. He starts in verse 31, and this is down in verse 37. But he talks about this new covenant that's going to be nothing like the old covenant, this new covenant, I will be their God, they shall be my people, In this new covenant, yada, yada. In verse 37, he's still in, this, in this, this context of talking about the new covenant, he says, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above be measured... This is the new covenant. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below—that's the if. If that can happen, if the heavens above can be measured and the the core of the earth can be traversed, if that can happen, then in this new covenant, I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Now let's let's try our best to to put these in. In context and in in, uh, juxtaposition here. You have the way of the old was they disobeyed, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the consequence was 40 years, the verse we just looked at it, number 32, 40 years of wandering in the desert until they were what? Starts with a D. Destroyed, dead, destroyed. That was the way of the old. And now he's talking about this way of the new. And in this way of the new, we just read it. Once the heavens are mapped, measured, and the foundations of the earth are traversed, once that happens, then I will cast you out. Then I will destroy you because of something you've done. Do we, can we kind of pick up on the difference between these two? They sound a bit different. The way of the system of old, you disobey, you're destroyed, What he's prophesying here, the day is going to come. Once the heavens are measured and the core of the earth is traversed, then I'll cut you off because of something you've done. Now, let's look at this heavens being measured and the core of the earth being traversed. What happens? Why did God pick these two things? What happens every time NASA gets a bigger telescope? We see more what? More heavens. We see more space. Everyone that I know of, I don't know, well, they've got the flat earth people, but everyone that I know of (laughs) says that the heavens, the, the, the universe is infinite, no ending to it. In fact, the only way for us to see more of the universe is to get bigger, what? More powerful telescopes. And we get a bigger telescope, we can see more stuff. Then they make a bigger telescope, we can see more stuff. So what's the point of what God is saying here? Once the heavens are measured, and I'm not a mathematician, but it's difficult to measure something that's immeasurable. Once the heavens, the infinite heavens are measured, that's when I'm going to cut you off because of something you've done. Do you pick up on that? And he also says, once the the core or the foundations of the earth are all searched out. In other words, once you dig that tunnel, like when we were kids, we dig in the tunnel to China. Once you dig that tunnel and you traverse through the earth, you search out the whole foundations of the earth and you traverse through the core of the earth, once you do that, that's when I'll cut you off because of something you've done. Well, what's the difficulty of traversing through the core of the earth? Liquid hot what? Magma in our Dr. Evil voice, right? Liquid hot magma, right? So what is God saying? Once you, as a human being, can tunnel through liquid hot magma, that's when I'll cut you off from the face of the earth. I mean, Anakin Skywalker didn't even make it through liquid hot magma, right? I don't think we are going to fare much better. He's a Jedi. And so what is God saying? This new covenant that's coming... It's going to be so different that based on what you do, I'm never going to cut you off. And this is what Israel missed. And I'm telling you guys, if we're not careful, this is what we miss today in this as the church. We think that God is still in some sort of way judging our our sins, holding them against us in some sort of way And his promise here, all the way back, I mean, Jeremiah 31, this is hundreds of years before it even happened. He says, the day will come that you measure the heavens, you walk through liquid hot magma, that's when I'll cut you off. In other words, it's never going to happen. So how could these things be? How can God say this? This is verse 37. I didn't want to put them all up on here. Let's just rewind a few verses to verse 34. And he explains how this is going to happen. For I will forgive all their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So how can God go from his dealings with Israel in the Old Testament? We read some out of Job. We read some out of Numbers. There's plenty more. You can find it. There's plenty in the Old Testament. How do we go from him when they disobeyed they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. He destroyed people. He singed the outskirts of the camp even in his anger raging against their sin. How can we go from that experience of God, that, act, that understanding of God, to this other understanding of God, which, is, which he says, as soon as you measure the immeasurable universe and as soon as you walk through liquid hot magma and survive, that's when I'll cut you off. How can we reconcile these two things? Because, he says, the day will come where I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And that, my friends, is exactly what happened on the cross. As Jesus hung there, the scriptures, we'll look at it in a second, in Colossians, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 something so radical happened, something that we could not in a million lifetimes fully understand the cosmic reality of what happened on that day when the wrath of God, the the anger of God was satisfied by the Lamb of God who came and took away the sins of the world. Follow with me now in the New Testament. This is a couple of decades after the cross, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writing to a bunch of Gentiles. By this time, it was sort of settled that Gentiles could actually be Christians, because that, that was a question at first amongst the church. But now, not only can they be Christians, but they can be Christians without having to become Jews, which is pretty fantastic. And Paul writes them. He's explained to them how this thing works. He says, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, and how are you in Christ? By faith, by believing, by trusting. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. What's the old things? Well, we can make a journal. Certainly the old you, the you that was born in Adam, the old heart, the old nature, who you once were. That has passed away for sure. But what else could be in this journal, this list of the old things? uh, God prophesied it back in Isaiah. Consider not the things of old. The manner in which God dealt with disobedient people. The old has passed away. And how has that passed away? because of what one Christ Jesus has done. And he explains this. Behold, new things have come. New realities exist. A new heart exists. A new a union with God exists. A new relationship, a new covenant exists. The basis by which God himself interacts and connects with and dwells with and treats humanity, it's all new because of what has happened with Jesus. Now, all these things are from God, all these new things. God is the one who originated it, who, look at this, reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us, us, Paul talking about himself and and his cohorts, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So what Paul is saying, let's don't pass this by, Paul is saying that in Christ, God himself has completely reconciled the world to himself. What does that mean? I was telling uh, Ryan earlier that I finally finished all my books for my business from uh, 2019, and I'm sending it to the bookkeeper to do whatever he does with it. And one of the things that he says he does, which I just have to take my word because I don't understand this stuff, is he reconciles the books, and so he texted me a bunch of questions this morning about these different things. And what he's trying to do, I understand, you probably understand it better than I do, is to get the checkbook and the QuickBooks to be the same, to reconcile, so that there's nothing outstanding, there's nothing that's different. Again, why he has to do that, I don't really understand, but I pay him to do it, and he does it. And it's, he does a great job with it. So by, it, by reconciling, it makes the things in the two categories equal, compatible, the same. And what Paul is saying is that in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God actually reconciled the world to himself. And he's given Paul, and I could even say us who believe, this ministry, the service of reconciliation. Now, does it mean just because God has reconciled the world to himself has righted all the wrongs, has removed the debt of the world, the sin of the world, does that mean that all of humanity is now saved? Is this universalism? Well, the answer obviously is no, because he continues on to say in verse 19, well, he explains, first of all, in 19, God reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them anymore think about you know again these these cat these columns reconciling your checkbook whatnot if you have this debt over here on this column and you need to get it over here on this column there needs to be something over here in this column a transaction so that the two things are equal what he is saying is that god himself placed jesus in this category taking all of the sin of humanity into himself thus ending the counting of sin things have balanced there's a balance between god's account in god's accounting of sin because of one christ jesus therefore the result is god no longer counting trespasses against them them being humanity that's us So again, we ask the question, does that mean that therefore everyone in the world is saved, whether we realize it or not? And the answer is, of course not. What Paul is saying is now he has committed to us the word of this reconciliation. We now tell people about what God has done. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to him. So on God's books, he has done a work by removing your sin through the life of Christ Jesus where he no longer counts sin. He no longer counts our sin against us because he has counted it all against the Lord Christ Jesus. Now in your books, Where do you stand with this? Do you believe this? Because that's the only way for you to be reconciled to him is by faith in him. All the works, all the efforts, all the knowledge of good and evil in the world can never make you right with him. You must believe what he did. And this is the ministry that Paul has. He said, I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm begging you, you who would listen to me, anyone who would ever read this letter... Be reconciled to God by faith in him is what he's talking about. In this last verse here, he says, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin to actually be sin on our behalf. This is how God reconciled the world to himself so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we become the righteousness of God in him by faith in him, by trusting him. So, our question of the morning is, Are is God still mad? Is, is God still angry? When God sees sin, because God's not blind, is there an anger that burns? Is there a, a, a kindling, like we saw in the Old Testament, of His anger that rages into a fire because of disobedience, because of sin? because of rejection, because of whatever you want to call it, with any sort of sin. Is that the way that this works today? Is God still mad? And I would have to say that based upon what I believe that Jesus Christ actually accomplished on the cross, and I could be wrong, but based upon what I see Jesus actually accomplishing on the cross by taking away the sin of the world, the whole point of Jesus coming was to reconcile us to him thus ending his counting. That's exactly what we just read. No longer counting our trespasses against us. And so is God still mad anymore? Is is he? Does he look into this thing of humanity today in 2020 and see things the same way he saw things in, you know, A.D. or B.C., whatever, with Israel? Is that the way God still works? And I only can say, if it is the way it still works, then we of most people are absolutely fools for believing this thing of Jesus Christ. If, we, if it still works that way, that God is still looking at us the same way he looked at Israel in the Old Testament, then who do we think we are claiming to have a relationship with him? The only way that we can have any sort of union, fellowship, intimacy, rest, etc., is by the work of Jesus who took away the sin of the world, therefore not counting our trespasses against us. Now we can count them against us and we probably count them against each other and that's what we've got to deal with. But I'm talking about, is God still angry? Does his anger burn when you sin, when I sin? Does his anger burn and then Jesus has to say, hey, don't forget, I took care of that. See, I have to say no. I could be dead wrong. You might disagree with me. But our journey marker this morning is God is not mad anymore. And it's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to believe because we get mad when people sin against us. We get upset. We burn with anger. But what is the reality? Grace upon grace, we're All the sin of the entire world was placed into Christ Jesus. And he either satisfied the anger of God or he didn't. He either satisfied, I don't think this is the right word, madness of God or he didn't. Was God mad? Yes, very mad. But something happened so how do you, how do I, how do we see God and his anger against sin? Do you see him in his anger against sin just like it was in the Old Testament prior to the cross? Or do you see God with his anger perfectly satisfied because of the cross? Now what about hell then? What about Eternal destruction. Doesn't hell speak of God's eternal anger against sin and against people who are sinners? I didn't put it on the screen, but I encourage you to read Revelation 20. Whenever I hear somebody talk about the eternality of hell, I say, have you read the end? What does Revelation 20 say about hell? That hell itself is what? Judged and cast where? Into the Lake of Fire, hell itself, as the Scripture calls it, is not even eternal. It is cast into the Lake of Fire, and so someone would say, "Okay, fine. Let's don't call it hell. Let's call it Lake of Fire." Isn't the Lake of Fire? Doesn't that speak of God's anger and eternal wrath against sin? If that's how we want to see it, fine. Go go ahead and see it that way. What I'm, what what I see, especially the New Testament writers talking about, it's it's not about Or anger about sin. That was settled, done. It is finished on the cross. But any sort of hell, lake of fire, whatever we would conceptualize that in our minds to be, simply is a matter of compatibility with God or non compatibility with God. What I mean is, I believe, and I could be wrong. We'll open up the floor to what you think might be the case and what the scripture teaches. But I think the scripture is super clear. We read it out of Second Corinthians. We could read it out of Hebrews. Super clear that the sin of the world has been removed. The sin of the world, the world, the entire world has been reconciled to God. But as Paul says in Romans 5, remember, it's not the removal of sin that makes us saved. It's the impartation of what that makes us saved? Life, the Holy Spirit, that makes us saved. We are saved by his life, Romans 5. And so the entirety of the world can be forgiven, and God no longer counts sin. But if an individual has not yet placed his faith and trust in God, that individual is not yet born of his spirit, not yet conformed into his likeness, not yet bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, if you will. And so imagine this with me. You have one God, one spirit, one truth. You have one holy, perfect, righteous God. And when you die, when I die, however that looks, whatever that happens, and we stand before him, having been born of him because we've placed our faith in him, we are now, as the scripture says, one with him. And I like to use the term, though it's not found in the Scripture necessarily, I don't think, I haven't looked for it, but I like the the idea of this word compatible. There is a compatibility now because we are born of His very Spirit. His Spirit and our Spirit have been merged together as one new man. And so when we stand before the Lord, as we already are, by the way, we are seated with Him in the heavenlies. It's not like one day we're going to automatically stand before the Lord. We are before the Lord right now in the heavenly places. Don't forget that. But when this all this whole thing fades to black and we stand before him however that's going to look what is our experience as human beings who have been born of his spirit what's that experience going to be like for us I think it's very clear the the radiance of the holy god is going to be rest so be comfort peace joy everlasting everything you would think of heaven to be this this eternal rest in Him. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Comfort. But you take that same God, you take that same holiness, you take that same perfection, and now an individual who has been forgiven, for all the world has been forgiven, but who has not yet been born of His Spirit, has not yet been uh, uh, made alive together with Him, they are still in the image of Adam, when that individual stands before the Lord, which I pray none of you are that individual, but when that individual who hasn't been born again stands before the Lord, who isn't compatible with him, who isn't holy, who isn't even alive in Christ, still dead in their iniquities, though forgiven, what will that experience of that individual be? Same God, same, same holy God. I think it's a totally different experience. I think that experience of that individual, I, an author once said that the un, an unrighteous man, a, a, a tissue from a tissue, pa- a tissue paper has more hope on the surface of the sun than an unrighteous man in the face of, of God. Same God, but a totally different experience because they have not been born of his spirit. Forgiven you may be, but not born of his spirit. And so that individual can, we can use the words wrath. We can use the words, you know, whatever words we want to use, but that individual standing before God upon death will not survive. Just like in the old Testament, just like in the old Testament, God said, Moses said, I want to see your face. God's like, you can't handle that Jack because Moses wasn't born of his spirit. But now in the new covenant, we have been born of his spirit. And for you and I, believe it or not, if you are a born again believer, to stand in the presence of the Holy of Holies, the God himself, it is comfort, peace, rest, joy, compatibility, perfect. But for an unbeliever to stand in that same God and before that same God, Destruction. What does Jesus say in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes shall not what perish. That's that's what He's talking about. That unbeliever standing before God. It's not because of sin. The sin of the world is taken care of, but because they have not been born of His Spirit. There is a rejection of incompatibility. Similarly, similarly to how we have um, transplants, human transplants, a transplanted heart, a transplanted liver, whatever it is, and that transplant. Sometimes is what? By the, ho- by the host. Sometimes it's rejected because it's not of that human being. It's not of that person. That person didn't make that heart, that liver, that whatever. And so a lot of times that patient has to take immune suppressing drugs the rest of their life so that they don't reject that new organ. Imagine God himself, holy, perfect, righteous, true, and an unbeliever, though forgiven, but not born of his spirit not one with him standing before him it's toast it's over destruction perish and so sometimes i think in error my opinion We look at that destruction of an unbeliever who's not compatible with the Lord, and we say, see, his anger against sin still burns. And I just want to just a quick time out and say, I I don't think it's the anger against sin that still burns. I think the cross, I'm foolish enough to say the cross satisfies the anger of the Lord. But is that person, does he have the new life within him, the life of God within him? Has he been born of God's Spirit? Is he one with him? I was trying to think of illustrations to help better understand or better communicate compatibility. You know, um, when we were younger, we would take uh, Diet Coke, right? And we would put those Mentos in it. Mentos and Diet Coke are incompatible. You put them together, you, if you've never tried it, it's pretty awesome. And there's this immediate eruption of stuff. I don't know what it is. We've probably all done the like, you know, the volcano thing with baking soda and what? vinegar. We've all done that. Those two are not compatible. There's a reaction. There's something that happens in a very basic way of understanding. That's taking an unbeliever who is still in the identity of Adam, though forgiven. That's not the issue. All sin of all people, of all men, in my opinion, based on what Paul teaches and Hebrews teaches, is done once and for all. But that image, that, that man who's still in the image of Adam, the first Adam, It's as, well, not as, it's more incompatible with God than Diet Coke and Mentos and, you know, whatever you want to imagine that to be. It doesn't work. There's incompatibility. Whereas those who have been born of his spirit, I was trying to think of things that are compatible. I couldn't get very deep, so I got some peanut butter and jelly. You can't get much more compatible than peanut butter and jelly or a hand in a glove. Steak and potatoes. I like that one, too. They're compatible. They fit they go together. And that, and is it anything to do with the believer? All the believer did was what? Believe. And they were born of his spirit now compatible with him. So let's don't think for a minute it's something that the believer accomplished. It was just simply faith, believing what God has said. So what I, what I, what, 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 riles up in me a lot of times when I think of well is God's wrath satisfied I think well hell still is real or the lake of fire destruction that's still legit so isn't that still wrath like in the sense of anger against sin and and if you want to see it that way I'm not like going to say hey you, you know you're wrong I'm, I, I just see the cross as the complete annihilation of the counting of sin once and for all now the question is, are you compatible with God or not? And your compatibility comes by faith in him. And if there is no compatibility, then there is destruction. Not because of sin, but because you're not born of him. Which if you want to say that's a sin, then go right ahead. I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not trying to split hairs. I'm just simply trying to communicate that God's anger, his, 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 his madness, if you will, towards you because of sin, it, it does not exist It is gone. It is satisfied in the work of Christ. God is not on some sort of swivel chair, swiveling back and forth based on your behavior. Last I checked, the heavens haven't been measured. Last I checked, the core of the earth has not been traversed. And so you have not been cast away from the presence of God based on something you've done. That's the promise. Now, whether that Fits with our understanding of God, whether that fits with our sort of religiosity, that's another story. But that's His promise. And I'm just, again, dumb enough to just say, hey, I'm going to believe the promise. I'm going to believe what He said, versus what even sometimes feels appropriate. It feels appropriate to be hated, have anger against me because of something I've done. That's what feels appropriate. Because I have anger towards my kids, my wife, you, me, you know, myself, when, I, when we do things that are inappropriate, sinful, etc. But that's not the way of the new covenant. Consider not the ways of old. For behold, I am doing something what? New. Either that's true or it's not. Now, we can go through the New Testament. We can find a verse here and a verse there that says, you know, for such the anger of God or the wrath of God. And I'm not saying there's not a, a judgment from God against those who don't believe. That's what I'm trying to explain. But, but I, I have to believe that because of Jesus is once and for all, it is once and for all. And the question now is, are we compatible with him or not? And if we're compatible by faith in him, by being born of him, then when we see him face to face, it is sweet warmth of, 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 of acceptance and delight and joy unspeakable versus an unbeliever experience of incompatibility. It's more hope for a tissue paper on the surface of the sun. Toast. As Jesus says, perish in John 3.16. So is God still mad? I have to say, no, he's not mad. But the question, he's not mad with you. The question is, are you compatible with him? I think that's the real answer, the real issue. It's not a matter of mad, angry because of sin. The question is compatibility with him by faith or not. So uh, that might raise up a couple of thoughts or questions. Um, as I always say, I could be dead wrong on all this. But I think it's important for us to nail in the coffin is God still mad? If he is, then we then mad at what? Okay, what, what makes him mad? Okay, these seven things make him mad, and these other things don't make him mad. Okay, well, what are those seven things? We better do our best to not do those seven things. You see where we get back to? We get back to man-made religion. Well, it's these ten things. Well, the ten things are too much. It's these four things. This is what makes him mad. I say it's once and for all. Now we live from the finished work. Knowing that if you're not a believer... You're not compatible and there is no hope, but not because of sin, because of incompatibility by nature, by birth, still in Adam, instead of by faith in Christ. Any thoughts or questions? But what about comments? Um, well, you got that one way off. That's not a Christian gymnastics. That's yeah. Go ahead. Right. I
2: guess there's two examples I can think of uh, in the New Testament that argued as kind of the anger of God being... Yep yeah
1: so yeah and I can think of others uh there's in um ephesians there's a passage in ephesians where or maybe it's Galatians I think it's Ephesians <laughs> talks about the wrath of god this for this reason the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience there's a passage there about the wicked too, yeah uh but but there's but certainly the one that I'm thinking of in Ephesians, the wrath of God coming against the sins of disobedience, I think it's Ephesians 2. See, I think that's exactly what I described. It, call it wrath. Call it incompatibility. There is, if not born in him, there is a destruction. There's no way around it. You must be born. I mean, that's Jesus' first sermon. You know, John, one of his first John three, except the man be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So there has to be not just forgiveness of sins, but there has to be a new birth, which comes by faith. But getting to Ananias and Sapphira, that's a great question. Um, This answer will not satisfy fully, but I do not, when I read, this is Acts chapter five, I do not see, maybe it's six, five or six. I do not read anywhere in in the account of Ananias and Sapphira, for those who are like Ananias and who? This is, the church has just gotten started. It's gotten started, and there's a momentum going so much that people are selling all of their property that God didn't tell them to do it, by the way. They're selling all their property and bringing their money and having like a communal pot for their money to help fund each other, basically, to support each other. It wasn't, the Lord didn't direct it to happen. It's just kind of what happened, which is, you know, it's fine. It's cool. But it's also, by the way, the reason why in the end of... uh, Paul's missionary journeys, he's going through the Mediterranean world, the Gentiles collecting offerings from the Gentiles to take to the Jews. Well, why didn't the Jews have any resources of their own? Because they had sold all their property and they spent the money. And so they were in need of the Gentiles providing for them. So they sold all their money and people were coming to the apostles to drop off the money and Ananias and Sapphira came and they had kept some of the money to themselves and they lied saying this is all the money and they died so how can we say that the Lord is not burning with anger against Ananias and Sapphira because of their lying well a couple thoughts one is if that's the way it is if that's the universal truth then every time we lie about our finances then we should expect nothing different than Ananias and Sapphira, if that's, you know, the way it is. Um being in this position as a pastor for almost 20 years in different uh groups and organizations, I've talked to a lot of people about their financial, you know, habits. And I can tell you, I know for truth, a lot of people lie about how much they donate to the church. Not, not necessarily this church, but like, you know, other organizations that I've been a part of. People lie about it all the time to make yourself feel, you know, better or you know, safe face or, or whatever. They didn't die. You know, so what's the deal? So I don't think it's a universalism. I don't find anywhere in the uh, record of Ananias and Sapphira, first of all, that they were born again. Nowhere does it say that they were disciples, that they were Christians. It just says that Ananias and Sapphira sold money, sold property, and brought it to the church, to the church leaders. Now that still doesn't answer the question. Well, wait a minute. If sin is You know, even for the unbeliever, is forgiven. Then how come this is is the case? You know, that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. But I just can't say that it's a universal, uh, you know, uh, law in in that sense because it doesn't happen every day today, every time today. The possibility exists that the church was so young that God wanted to make a statement of, uh, oh, and also read it again I don't think anywhere it says that the Lord killed them I think it does say that they dropped dead but it doesn't say anywhere that the Lord killed them he does say that you lied against the Holy Spirit and to God but I don't recall it saying that the Lord himself killed them so um, that's a great question but I don't think we have to abandon the clear teaching of the apostles for an exception the other about Laodicea and the, the churches in Rome, Revelation, what's really cool, when you, if you read that cha- chapter, I think it's like chapter two, 2 and 3 of Revelation, maybe even some in chapter 1, each of those letters are written to the angel of the church of Sardis, the angel of the church of Laodicea, the angel of the church of Thyatira, etc. And the word, so we have to make a, a judgment call. Does every church have an angel? You know, is there an angel of the church of life journey, you know, where God sends that angel a message and that message somehow from that angel gets to us? Is that, is that what he's talking about? Well, the word, the Greek word angel angelos, So we know this simply means messenger one who brings a message. So I think that it's actually, uh, just talking to whoever the leadership is that maybe it's a single elder or pastor or something that's leading that, Particular group, and I think he's writing the letters to these people. And what's really interesting, and I might get into some weeds here, but as you read through all of the letters, the seven letters to the seven churches, all of the you the Us are—I can't say all, but the ones where it's like you know, the the, you know, uh, where he's talking about what they did and like the the wickedness, and I'm going to judge and all this sort of stuff—all of those Us are singular, not plural. It's not, hey, Life Journey Church, y'all this. It's, hey, Angel of Life Journey Church, I see your wicked deeds. I see your, what you've done, talking singular. So the potential is there that that letter to the churches that we call it to the churches is technically the letter to the leader of the church, and they're leading the church inappropriately, and he says you to one of them, maybe it's Laodicea, have you, you, you've, you've, you know, squandered all this you've done all this stuff but if you had simply just bought from me then I would give you a life. I mean that sounds like almost like salvation right there. If you had just come to me I would give you more than what you had ever hoped for and asked for. So it's possible and I mean I'm I'm open to being corrected, obviously, but it's very possible when you just read those letters to the individual, to the single individual who's leading the church it's possible that that's who he's writing the letter to as he keeps saying singular you, you, you. But if you had bought from me, and that's a singular you in that example to Laodicea. So there's, there, there's I don't think we have to throw away the clear teaching of 2 Corinthians 5, of Hebrews, et cetera, because of, is he talking to the whole church? Is he talking to an individual in the church or who's leading the church, who's representing, the me- he is the messenger, you know, con- c- communicating to the church? It, there's too many questions for me to say, oh, here's the, here's the, um, this clear teaching of God has reconciled himself to the world. We've got to throw away because mm-hmm. of, you know, this passage here or there.
2: I think something to me is that you know you view like the lake of fire and that consequence as being wrath and anger, but consequences and the consequence of sin is death. The consequence of no uh, not having the salvation of Christ is death. That can be delivered without anger and actually likely with sadness from yeah from God. Uh,
1: very true. Yeah, just, just I think that's that's a great way of saying what I was trying to say earlier that it's not an issue of. Of even again further judgment for sin, it's it's look you're not compatible. You don't you don't fit. You don't fit with me because you're not born of me, and I think it's great sadness, great sadness, because oh, look at what he did to to draw uh, any who would believe into him, and um, but I think it's a great way of looking at it um, for sure, um, but if somebody wants to call it. Wrath against sin, and I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to split hairs. I'm just trying to make it. What I'm ultimately trying to communicate is, we must not see God as, as. I, I, for example, I was underneath the teaching of a man for years, for about ten years, who told a member of our church, "Here's an example. Their their child, their their baby caught, or you don't know, catch it. I don't know how it works. Leukemia." And at age two or three, she, she died. And the leader of this church, knowing the history of this husband and wife, before they were husband and wife, conceived a child who was still living. And the, this, this man in this church, the leader of this church, said to that couple, the reason why your baby died is because you guys had a baby out of wedlock. And this is the wrath of God against your sin. Okay, if that's true, if that's the way it works, may anybody else do something before they were married that they're not proud about? Well, watch out. for Your you kids better watch out. That's his, that's his view of God based on the truth of the old covenant. That is true. The old covenant, that's how way it, the way it worked. But consider not the way of old. For behold, I'm doing something new. Yes, there's consequences to not having faith in him. But it's not based upon what you've done or not done. It's based upon whether you've believed or not believed, and that's what I want to emphasize more than anything else. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, and so I definitely agree with the overarching point. Right. Um, so I don't. Want and to that's
1: say the bigger that deal. There. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. Um, one of the scriptures that they came to my mind, and that's we're going through Romans right now, mm-hmm. and you know Romans one through three, and yeah. particularly one, calls out. The wrath of God. Yeah. And it's coming. And that's certainly Paul, certainly New Testament. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. And then when he, and so, you know, one through three builds on the whole world is guilty, mm-hmm. right? And then it moves on. And then four, he, uh, Paul says, uh, this is, I'm going to read four, two. I was picking shoes, sorry. everybody can go back and correct me. Just read Revan's four <laughs> for the sake of time. So, Romans four, two, he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he's done something to boast about before God. For what, does, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then you move down a little bit, and then four um, 4.7, he's referencing back to, I believe, one of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. He's, he's talking about, David speaks of a man with blessing. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Mm-hmm blessed is the man who sin the Lord will not take into account. Um, And then Paul goes on in the next few verses and talk about, is this for just the circumcised or is it for the uncircumcised as well? Um, And where he comes to is, um, where he comes to is that he says, no, this, basically, this scripture applies to those who have put their faith in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's the belief, it's the faith is what's credited you as righteousness. Right. Therefore, your sin is longer taken into account. Yeah. And so I think I'm having a hard time kind of reconciling a couple of things. I mean, one, Paul wrote both of them Yeah. And right. I don't think mm-hmm. one supersedes the other. Yep, right? so mm-hmm. part of it is understanding the context of the letters and everything mm-hmm. else. So again, it's not, not to split. No. Because I agree. Right. Like that. As born-again believers, the Lord's anger does not work yeah. against us. Right. Um, and I think it's just that.
1: Yeah. yeah yep.
2: And that like, kind of
1: understanding. Yeah. I, I would encourage, myself included, to go through Romans. One, two, three, four, but then keep going. Five, yeah. six, seven, eight. Because I think it's all written as a, a totality and not just written for Theology 101 class, right, which is what's happened and we've systematized it and we've pulled all these things out. But as you're, you know, uh, you're very correct. He goes through defending that you don't even have to have the law in order to be guilty. You can be a Gentile without the law because it's in your heart. Then he goes into talking about ultimately now that we've all uh, we've sinned, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, whatever it is, but then he continues to build into chapter five where he says, Therefore as one has died, therefore all have died. See, I think that I take that to him and I could be wrong, but to say, look, this one death, it's bigger than we could ever imagine. And then it's where in five he goes on to say but it's not by his death that we are alive. It's by his life that we're alive. So Jesus died in the re- in the, to justify. He said, he calls it justification. His death justified the world, but it is by his life that is now we are saved, that's within us. And so, and then he goes on, you know, why then the law? Well, the law didn't come to save you. It came to actually increase the trespasses. And then we get chapter six, you know, and the glorious of eight. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, yes there's condemnation, not against necessarily your sin, because one died, all therefore all died. But it's condemnation because like Brian was saying, I think I and mean, I'm trying to say, it's because you, there's a consequence to your lack of faith and it's you don't fit, you don't belong, you're not a part of his family which only comes by faith. So I, I see him building and building and building and building and then chapter 12, he says, in view of God's mercy, oh my God, look at this, in view of his mercy, let us don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world but instead be renewed by the, uh, be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And uh, so it's, it's beautiful as, we, as it builds uh, the, the case he's building, like a skilled, I think, like a skilled prosecutor or defense attorney, whatever it would be, to explain just how powerful this, this event of his death, but even more so. That's what he says, Paul, even more so his resurrection, his life, exactly. So it's a, it's a I'm, you know, again, this isn't a line of demarcation. The big deal is his, your sin is no longer counted against you. If you can't get to that, um, please do, (laughs) because there's I mean, there is no joy in Mudville, you know, because Casey's going to keep striking out. You're going to keep struggling at the bat to to swing and hit a grand slam in order to get his favor. It's just not going to work that way. It doesn't work that way. Yes, ma'am. I don't know anybody else, but I mean, I totally It doesn't, knowing that and believing that doesn't erase by being mad of myself. Right. Agreed. Disappointment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I agree 100%. Or in each other, you know, disappointment with each other and anger towards each other. Yeah. Uh, That's a great question that we can grow from, from the basis of, yeah, being honest. I screwed up. I did something, whatever it happened to be, but tomorrow's a new day my, my eyes were taken off of the prize, taken off of Christ. And, and, it, and it went to the flesh, which, I mean, we can just sit here all day and talk about all those things from this last week and each one of us, but that's not, that doesn't bring life focusing and dwelling upon our failures. Doesn't bring life focusing and dwelling upon Christ is what produces life. Again, Paul doesn't say that which you did last week, that which you did again this week, and that which you're probably going to do next week, think on these things. He said that which is noble, that which is pure, that which is trustworthy. Set your mind on this, because this is what produces the life of Christ within you. We don't have to be ignorant of these things, vices, whatever you call it, when we give sin too much attention in our own minds, we end up following, and we end up... That's the point of the law. The law was given to bring great focus on sin, and it ended up bringing great sinning of all sorts, Paul says in Romans 7. Yes, ma'am. Uh, my thought is,
2: uh, I, I agree, God is not mad at us anymore, but it seems, you know, it's how... Okay, God is love. How do how we see this mad God as being love? In others, is 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 God the Father different? Was He a mad Father in the Old Testament? And now He's a loving Father? And
1: uh, yeah, so how? Yeah, that's a great question. We're running out of time. I would just simply say I think He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but something else changed. Something else that changed was the sin of the world changed because it was taken off. This is the reconciliation. It was taken off of the world and placed into His own Son. And when that happened 2,000 years ago, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but now He no longer looks to the world as uh, in, in, in counting and judgment of sin. He looks to the world as that's already been taken care of. Now do you believe? Do you believe that it has? And I I think I I think you have to, meaning otherwise he's changed. And I think he's the same. Yes, he has been the constant. What's changed is the covenants, What's changes is what he's done with sin. In the old covenant, man was held accountable for the sin. In the new, Jesus is held accountable for the sin. And so therefore, the sin is no longer a deal. It's a done deal. In the, in the eyes of God, in the mind of God, in the realm of heaven, not in this world. I mean, you come and you know, slash my tires, we're going to have words, right? Um, because that's not cool. You know, and I'm, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to be reconciled until you pay for some new tires, right? But that's this world. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. There's another kingdom, another reality that we can live from to know how to deal with ourselves when we fail in others, you know, sort of a deal. Great discussion, and I mean, it's not the end of the discussion, but it's the end of our time. So uh, let's stand and be closed with a word of prayer. Love you guys, and um, it's a challenging. If, 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 if I were to submit, especially on this, some of the nuances of our conversation today that I've got it all figured out, I don't. No way do I. I know, though, that the cross worked. Something powerful happened, um, something greater than our wildest imaginations, and we're called to believe it. And I want us to. Father, we thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for Carl and his family for joining in with us this morning. We pray for his wife and his little one. We pray for all the little ones, uh, Gwen and anyone else who's, who's out sick, the Carlsons. We love you so much. We pray that you would continue to open our eyes to see the truth of this unfailing mercy and grace and love and finality of the cross. Yes, the entire world, Jew, Gentile, totally guilty, totally unable, unable. but something radical happened when one died, therefore all died. And we now have life, those who believe. And you've given us, like Paul, the ministry of teaching, sharing, communicating what you've done, this ministry of reconciliation so that others can believe and be reconciled to you. Father, we thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.
0: Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.